Uh, it's wonderfully accessible. You don't have to understand law in order to understand the case studies. Um, it's set in the social and historical context. It's beautifully written. It's impeccably researched. And it's never been done before. And it couldn't have been done better. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Research at OU Law School. On today's episode, we have a book launch. The book in question is Lesbianism and the Criminal Law, written by my dear friend and colleague Caroline Derry. The discussion is hosted by Professor Simon Lee, together with Caroline Derry and Professor Rosemary Akuti. I hope you enjoy the discussion and check out Caroline's book. Welcome to this discussion of Caroline Derry's book, Lesbianism and the Criminal Law, Three Centuries of Legal Regulation in England and Wales, by my colleague, Dr. Caroline Derry. Welcome to the Open University Law School. I'm Simon Lee. I'm professor of law here. And we're going to hear in a minute a conversation between Caroline Derry, the author of this great book, and uh, another expert in the sphere, Professor Rosemary uh, and they are going to discuss Caroline's book, the motivations for it, uh, the revelations that it has, and then we're going to have questions and answers from all those participating. Now, this is part of a research cluster in feminism, gender and law, which is part of the overall research efforts of the Open University Law School. We're very grateful to the university, the faculty, the law school, and all of those who are helping us, Louise Clipson, uh, Matt Vince, Keith Hamilton, all, all kinds of people have been involved in this conversation. And I'm going to hand over now to Rosemary. Hello, everyone. I'm really pleased to be able to introduce this new book by Caroline Derry, which I just think is absolutely wonderful. And the way I'd like to conduct this launch is for me to ask Caroline a series of questions, um, which will, I think, enable her to explain to us what the argument is and why it's such an important book and why we should all want to read it. Um, so Caroline, I'm going to start by saying that it's generally thought that the criminal law has never had anything to do with uh, lesbians and lesbianism in England and Wales. And you've written a book that shows that that clearly isn't the case. Um, and so I wondered if you could explain why the criminal law should have ever been interested in concerning itself with lesbians and lesbianism. I think I can best start to explain that by reading um, a short passage from the opening of the book's introduction. So, there is a surprisingly persistent myth that lesbians have never been punished by the criminal law of England and Wales because of Queen Victoria. She supposedly refused to believe that women would do such things, or in an alternative version, ministers were unwilling to raise the subject with her. As a result, there could be no prohibition in the Criminal, criminal Law Amendment Act 1885, equivalent to that criminalising gross indecency between men. Sex between women, the myth assures us, has been the subject of nothing worse than benign legal neglect. The story is false. This book seeks to challenge the mythology on several grounds. 
First, the absence of a specific crime should not be confused with benign neglect. Rather, it was central to a policy of silencing, which aimed to keep lesbianism outside the knowledge of, or at least unspeakable by, respectable white British women of higher social class. That silencing was required precisely because of acute anxieties about female sexual autonomy. Relationships between women were seen as a potent threat to the patriarchal family. Second, the lack of a discrete crime did not entirely prevent the prosecution of sex between women using other offences. Such relatively rare moments of legal visibility form many of the case studies around which each chapter is centred. These case studies allow us to identify both the consistent factors and the significant developments in the law's approach over three centuries. Third, there has not been a smooth progression from invisibility to social acceptance. And this book will examine the ways in which the criminal justice system has responded to recent social and political changes. Now that straightforward silencing of lesbianism is no longer a realistic policy, there is a more troubled relationship between lesbianism, the criminal law, and their wider social context. In other words, demythologizing this subject is important, not only as a matter of historical accuracy, but also because of its continuing and damaging effects today. Well, I'll pick you up on um, one of the points, at any rate, you made there, and you made a lot of points, uh, and that is, um, you suggested that one of the reasons that the criminal law was concerned with lesbians was because it was a threat to normal heterosexuality. And of course, you're saying that you bring your study up to the present um, and where there is greater openness, as you said. So I wonder if you could say something about the benefits of a historical approach in dealing with this kind of topic where perhaps the ways that we've conceptualized lesbians and lesbianism have certainly changed over the centuries but somehow it still seems to be a problem for the criminal law yeah i think one of the benefits of a historical survey is to draw out that there is a sort of underlying consistency so yes there there are common themes um, women's sexuality has been something for men to control, whether because it was excessive and unruly, or passive, innocent, and therefore at risk of corruption. And given that um, male sexual prerogative, lesbianism has been seen as something polluting and corrupting, which needed to be regulated by silencing as a first choice, and by direct criminalization really as a last resort um, and we can contrast that with the lack of protection of women from men's sexual desires um, so in 1921 um, mps debated whether lesbianism should in fact be criminalized um, that suggestion was there, um, not really as a serious um, expectation that it would become law, but in order to make sure that a bill to strengthen age of consent law would run out of time. 
So in other words, the MPs who in 1921 suggested criminalization of lesbianism were simultaneously opposing meaningful age of consent law. And moving to today, um, consent to sexual activity obtained by deception is criminal if the deception is as to the person's sex, but sustained deceptions by state agents in the undercover policing cases are not criminal. And throughout the centuries, another continuing theme is men's confidence in presenting themselves as the authorities on women's sexuality, despite consistently getting it wrong, albeit in ways that have varied over time. Um, but the span of time the book covers also makes it apparent that attitudes haven't been monolithic. They've developed in response to wider social, medical and legal developments. Um, so the respectable woman um, supposedly protected by silencing may have been consistently white and British, but she's moved from being in the landed gentry or upper middle class um, so that the policy came to encompass the lower middle classes and even the upper working class. Um, why did you start your book in the 18th century? Because the 18th century is really the point of which many of the ideas and institutions we're familiar with today um, began to take on their current shape. Um, so, for example, the idea of men and women as being fundamentally anatomically different really took root then and gained acceptance widely. Um, in place of the older idea that men and women had exactly the same bits but differently arranged so women's were sort of inside out because we were cooler. Um, the criminal justice system also began to take on its modern shape. Um, for example, lawyers began to be involved in criminal trials and the case study I used for that chapter is a prosecution from 1747 and that's really an early example of um, that. The prosecution instructed a criminal barrister to um, represent them. And another perhaps less obvious factor which is also vital in this period is the growth of the press. So what we get are newspaper and magazine accounts of these cases, which are really our best sources um, for many of them. And the best way to discover many of them as well, because one consequence of the lack of a specific offence is that the cases are really hard to locate. So even where you have good court records, and in the 18th century you very often don't, there are huge gaps, um, it would be very hard to find the cases because you, you couldn't search by a particular charge. Um, so the 18th century really brings all of that together and therefore seemed a, a good starting point. Yes, and it enabled you to do 300 years, really, which is, which is amazing. I want to whiz forward to the, to the 20th century, um, just because I suppose I'm 
more people know about that. Um, and I was particularly struck by the interwar years and the large number of out lesbians in public life that you refer to, because of course you don't just talk about the court cases, you actually set this in a social context. Uh, and I wondered if you could explain perhaps why we suddenly see, or we begin to see, many more lesbians in public life and how the law responded to that. Yeah, so I think um, after the First World War, really a lot of things came together. So one was the women's movement, which had brought new possibilities, particularly for middle class women in terms of education, in terms of finding satisfying employment, which gave them a measure of economic independence and in terms of being able to engage in public life. And of course, this is the period when women gained the vote and so on. Another factor was sexology, the scientific study of sexuality, which had emerged in the late 19th century. And from the lesbian perspective, it had many failings, but it did give a new kind of intellectual validity to talking about alternatives to conventional heterosexuality. And it was really taken up by some progressives in the early 20th century, including some key members of the women's movement. Um, so there were small but quite influential groups discussing it, engaging in activism. The third factor was the First World War itself. Um, which for all its horrors did give women of all classes new opportunities to live and work together and to do so in ways which moved far beyond traditional gender roles and expectations. And there was also a much more negative factor though, um, which is that during and after the war, women's sexuality and their maternal role were both seen as very much connected but also as issues of grave national concern so lesbianism really became seen as a danger not just to the family um, but also to the nation race and empire so there, there are very conflicting things going on and to be honest the law really struggled to respond so in the 1920s it seems to do some wild seesawing for a bit before it settles down again by doing its very best to get back to the Victorian silence about lesbianism, which perhaps surprisingly it did have some success in doing. So I already mentioned that in 1921 Parliament had ultimately chosen to lose a popular bill rather than criminalise sex between women because they were utterly fearful of what publicity would do. They said quite explicitly that were their wives to try this, oh, were they to hear about it, they'd try it, if they try it they would never come back to the marriage and family. There was a certain male lack of self-confidence there. Um, so silence was seen as absolutely um, the way forward, although there were also murmurings of alternatives. And so in 1928 we have the opposite happening, the Home Secretary determinedly pushes through criminal proceedings against the publishers of a lesbian novel, 
Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness. Um, and they managed to get that suppressed, but at the cost of quite a lot of publicity, albeit often in a form that would have made sense to people who didn't already know what the subject was. But then in 1929, we get another shift. The criminal courts are faced with another high profile case. Um, we have Colonel Barker, a rather colourful character. Um, he's apparently a MONS veteran organising a society for veterans of that battle. Um, he's a prominent fascist, um, has a series of failed businesses and is married. But he's prosecuted when it emerges that actually, legally, he's Valerie Barker. Now, that prosecution was barely a year away from the Well of Loneliness case. Um, and Barker was interpreted by the court as clearly a woman engaged in a sexual relationship with another woman, um, although the wife did deny a sexual relationship. The court seemed to have thought otherwise. Um, but there was a real effort to silence the sexual aspects of the case from public view pretty much totally. Um, so the courts have moved back to silencing and it would be the 1950s before lesbianism began again to be openly alluded to in the courtroom at all. Oh, well, tell us more about the 50s, because we're coming into my lifetime now. <laughs> and so far as I can recall, it was totally underground, really, lesbianism in the 50s and 60s. And it's hardly mentioned at all in the Wolfenden Report. Mm. Um, so can you maybe say more a bit about those decades and what was going on? Yeah, so um, the Wolfenden Report is... Um, obviously seen as a watershed moment in terms of sexuality and particularly male homosexuality. Um, but as you say, lesbianism, it barely gets mentioned. Again, this wasn't through lack of knowledge amongst those involved that lesbianism existed. Um, whether there was wider social knowledge is, is a different matter. So. Um, Wolfenden himself later said in his autobiography that most ordinary people had no idea what the subject matter was um, and there was, there's probably a lot of truth in that um, but that wasn't the case for the witnesses that the Wolfenden committee heard. In fact a lot of them specifically mentioned lesbianism, it comes up again and again um, but you'd never guess that from the final report um, and the evidence in, even included several long memos or long passages within other memos about lesbianism. One of those is from the War Office, who sent it actually at the committee's request. And that memo explains the approach that was taken by the women's forces during the Second World War. And that approach was basically assume there is no lesbianism happening, assume there are no relationships like this between women, unless you're faced with absolutely incontrovertible evidence. And if that happens, then 
quietly um, dismiss the woman ringleader, discharge her and get rid of the problem that way. So the rationale was that most women going into the services would not know about lesbianism and to try and address it more directly would let them know that it existed and again you're back to if they know about it they might try it. Um, so that reassertion of silencing is the best way to control lesbianism um, really carried on in the 1950s and was pretty much accepted by the committee but it wasn't that just just that sort of social context the Wolferton committee also had a specific reason for keeping lesbianism as sort of out, far out of the report as possible they wanted to recommend the partial decriminalization of sex between men um, on the basis that first it would prevent blackmail and secondly it would allow men who were homosexual to seek medical treatment so that they didn't become practicing homosexuals or that they ceased to practice it. Um, however, that partial decriminalization wouldn't make sense if the report drew a parallel with women because of course there wasn't a specific offense at all for women. Um, so as a result, the Wolfenden report ignored lesbianism all the evidence it had heard as far as possible and just quietly distinguished lesbianism as being less libidinous and less of a social problem. Mm, yes and then along in the late 60s and 70s comes the women's movement um, and lesbian feminists and uh, they of course I think did their best to push the issue right out in the open. But I wanted to, to look at this in, in the context of something I mentioned before, the ways in which lesbian is conceptualised. And you've told us about the sexologists in the interwar years and how they, um, they talked about the, the uh, congenital invert, someone who was born this way, inverted. Uh, with inversion, um, and they talked about pseudo-lesbians who are the ones who were, you know, corrupted by the real ones um, and who would normally have, you know, a, a happy heterosexual life and instead were ens ensnared into, into lesbianism. So there was very much this idea that, that sexuality was innate. But for lesbian feminists in the 70s and 80s, um, it was quite a different story. They were talking about um, gender and sexuality as being socially constructed um, and even, even a choice. And the, the revolutionary feminists were saying any woman can be a lesbian. Um, so, you know, and that's, that's where I came in, I guess, is really into that era. And so it's quite interesting for me decades later to see that recent discussions about sex and sexuality seem much more to be going back to this idea of um, we're born a certain way, where our, our both gender and sexuality are innate and not learned or, or chosen. Um, what's your view on that? Um, I, I think that is where the courts are um, and probably Parliament as well. So there, there's a little bit of a parallel 
in that you do get section 28 um, which prohibited the promotion of, of homosexuality um, which only made sense if it could be a choice if, if it wasn't innate um, and I, I think that was a moment where really the opposition to that a very influential part of it was saying no no it's utterly innate you can't change it um, and I think the, the courts have gone along with that I, I think they've always been quite uncomfortable um, with, with any other idea um, in the 20th century really they've, they've mostly gone with it as innate for some people um, but as you say the idea that others are open to corruption and so I think that now with it's a bit like in the 1920s in that the courts aren't really sure where to go on the one hand they're working within a legislative framework of formal equality and gender neutrality so there's no legal reason to distinguish lesbianism from other forms of sexuality but on the other there's clearly a lot of discomfort with it um, but what's interesting is that this idea of lesbianism as congenital in some women who will then corrupt others for whom it isn't has really been surprisingly durable um, so in the 18th century marriage prosecutions the wife's innocence was never seriously questioned as you say in the interwar years um, that was the dominant sort of sexological idea that you had congenital inverts and pseudo inverts and it still subtly persists now so you get terms like malign influence used in the cases so the criminal courts have pretty much maintained an approach where you have the corruptors whose identity is fixed and the corrupted well the first problem with that formulation is that the people being prosecuted even today often don't have fixed or clear identities at all they may be lesbian they may be trans we just don't know and in pre-sentence reports for example they're often indicating that they themselves are not sure the second problem is that once the courts see themselves as protecting young heterosexuals from lesbian corruption they don't address the real wrongs in many of the cases coming before them so the defendant's offenses are seen by the courts as harmful primarily because they seem to be causing supposedly heterosexual women to question their sexuality and that's seen as an entirely negative process um, so the that is not the harm emphasized by most complainants in the cases which tend to be around sustained deceptions and manipulations and feeling that they were for example um, in the gender fraud cases that they were in love with somebody who didn't really exist it's a sort of bereavement so for them it's very much about the relationship and the breach of trust whereas for the courts it's you were made to question your sexuality or you were made to kiss a woman um, simultaneously though by asserting that we are in a legally equal society those same courts get to ignore all the reasons why somebody and particularly a young person 
may not feel able to come out, may not feel able to be open about their relationships. Um, and the result of all this is that in these cases, um, conviction seems to be almost inevitable, even when there is conflicting evidence that may raise questions about guilt. And of course, that's a huge contrast to the likelihood of conviction in other sexual offences cases. Mm, yes, well, this, this is a, a note to end on and not, I suppose, um, the most optimistic note, but it strikes me that rather than having been absent from the criminal law over the last 300 years, in fact, when lesbians are dealt with, they tend to be dealt with more severely by the criminal law than heterosexuals. Is that fair to say? Because certainly these recent case studies that you've just mentioned do seem to bear that out. Yes, so um, there may not have been a huge number of prosecutions, but there have been a number. And as you say, the, the consequences have been severe. Um, so in the 18th century, we think of it as a time of cruel punishments, but um, offences which would typically attract a whipping, for example, in one case, um, the main case study, um, the sentence was for public whippings as well as a period of imprisonment. Um, in another, the defendant was pilloried and probably blinded by that experience, um, the things that were thrown. And moving on to today, where we do apparently have, again, formal equality in the law, um, there is still disparity in the actual treatment, which is rooted in that history. And it's rooted in the history in another way, I think, which is that there's still a strong assumption that the criminal law has never bothered about lesbians and we've lived in a sort of haven of toleration. So hostility in the criminal justice system towards lesbianism, which has been there over centuries, has never really been overtly addressed. Um, it's assumed it wasn't there. And parallel with that, it's assumed that the very obvious improvements in the formal legal situation of gay men, um, decriminalization and equal age of consent, mean equivalent imp improvements in social and legal attitudes to both gay men and lesbians. Um, and we know that unfortunately that's not wholly true. It, it's really not that simple. Um, and indeed one of the underlying assumptions of the court remains that lesbian relationships are inherently less desirable than heterosexual ones. But there's the additional issue that lesbians appear before the courts not just as criminals, but specifically as criminal women. And there's a considerable feminist criminology um, which demonstrates that women are seen by the courts as doubly deviant and therefore face greater disapproval. In other words, they're obviously deviant in the criminological sense because they are convicted of a crime. But they're also deviant because in their offending, they haven't conformed to conventional femininity. And lesbians are very much in that category. In fact, it's perhaps even a triple deviance. 
so against the criminal law against the feminine role and against heterosexual norms in which women are still expected to be sexually passive and submissive so yes the book does point to ongoing issues but it's not completely hopeless i think social attitudes certainly no. are changing um if slowly and the criminal law does usually follow even more slowly in their way so there's hope for the future well thank you caroline for introducing us to, to your book um, which i'd like to recommend to everyone uh, it's wonderfully accessible you don't have to understand law in order to understand the case studies um, it's set in the social and historical context it's beautifully written it's impeccably researched and it's never been done before and it couldn't have been done better. So thank you. Thank you very much to Rosemary and to Caroline. And now we've got some questions. Those participating online, uh, naturally, therefore, the author, Caroline. Uh, I'll read out the question. And the first is from Neil, who says, Hi, Caroline, really enjoyed listening to your discussion. What do you think was the main driver in the lack of recognition? Do the court cases frame the issues in terms of morality or patriarchy or nominally notions of family, for example, which, which, which actually equate to patriarchy or, or perhaps religion? And does this change over time? So what were the main drivers? How do the court cases frame these issues? Yeah, interesting question. Um, to be honest, the courts mostly frame it as fraud. Um, I was going to say until very recently, but actually still. So in the 18th century, it's presented as financial fraud, not because there was any amount of money involved, but because um, on marriage, a wife's possessions, humble as they may be, became her husband's. Um, in the early 20th century, there are cases um, about perjury, um, because false declarations are made on marriage certificates. The current cases, um, some are prosecuted as age of consent, but some are prosecuted as sexual offences because the activity was non-consensual because of deception as to um, gender. Um, so they've, they've kind of really avoided framing it in the terms we might expect, but underlying that, is a, a lip service really to morality. Um, so in the Colonel Barker case, for example, Colonel Barker had married a woman when it turns out that it's um, in law two women marrying. Um, prosecution counsel seems particularly aggrieved that they married in church. And so they're profaning the house of God rather than at the marriage itself. So there is that kind of moral undertone, but really a very patriarchal um, discourse underlying all of this, um, very much around heterosexuality as a norm, the heterosexual nuclear family as a norm, um, and that sexual activity outside that is inherently inferior and undesirable. So 
underlying it is patriarchy, patriarchal ideas, um, and particularly, as you say, notions of the family and what's an acceptable family and so on. Um, but it, it's presented in quite different terms legally. The second question is from Andrew. It seems that a lot of the reforms agitated for by gay men have resulted in changes which have mainstreamed homosexuality through assimilation with heterosexual norms and institutions, such as marriage. Given that there's often a strong intersection between lesbianism and feminism, has there been the same level of enthusiasm among lesbianism for reforms which result in acceptance through assimilation, or are lesbians more radical than gay men? <laughs> um. I, I, I wouldn't uh, claim to speak on behalf of all lesbians, but I, I think there is more of a critical approach broadly um, uh, or has been from lesbians in terms of things like equal marriage as being the sort of gold standard of equality because there is this long standing um, feminist critique of marriage, for example. So um, probably much more debate there as to whether um, equal marriage would assimilate people into it, assimilate same-sex relationships into it, or whether it would be marriage that was changed. Having said that, there are plenty of lesbians who, who are happy with that model, that assimilationist one, we could call it. Um, plenty of gay men who who are much more critical. Um, certainly the initial figures were that getting civil partnered and married seemed to be much more popular with gay men than lesbians and I think that's for all sorts of reasons. Um, one big one is that th there are probably more gay men who, who aren't influenced by those kinds of feminist critiques. Another is some of the key financial motivations for marrying um, like inheritance tax implications tend to apply more to gay men because as men they are as, as a group in an economically um, stronger position very often but overall yeah difficult to say. <laughs> a third question that's come from the audience is we haven't spoken about the 19th century uh, what case study did you focus on for that period of time, Caroline? Um, so that's quite a strange one, I'd say. Um, I identified the late 19th century as the high watermark of silencing because the most important case then um, actually wasn't about lesbianism at all directly. Um, so a campaigning journalist, W.T. Steed, um, characterised London as a modern Babylon of trial prostitution and to demonstrate this um, arranged to buy a 13 year old girl supposedly for the purposes of prostitution but actually for his rather sensationalist article about the, the moral depravity of London. Um, amongst the people involved was a French midwife, Louise Murray. Um, her only involvement in it was to certify that the girl was a virgin. Um, 
W.T. Steed and his accomplices who were campaigners for improvements in age of consent law um, were prosecuted for charges including abduction and alongside them Murray was prosecuted for indecent assault and that was the case which confirmed that indecent assault on a female could be committed by a female. In other words, that sex between women, certainly where there was no consent, either factually or because of age, was within the criminal law's ambit. And it's, it's entirely typical of silencing at that point. The, the case that confirmed that sex between women or could in some circumstances be criminal actually didn't involve sex between women. Fourth question is from Alex. Hi Caroline, thank you. Your book sounds wonderful. I'm interested in your process for finding evidence for the cases in the 18th century, given how difficult it is to find what's out there. Where you managed to find your examples, were there any that you couldn't fit into the book? Um, it is difficult to find the 18th century sources, particularly because there wasn't a specific offence. Um, so my starting point was the secondary sources, for example, Lillian Faderman and Emma Donoghue wrote groundbreaking histories of um, relationships between women at this period. I also searched in newspapers and um, periodicals of the period and so on. And then with the cases identified, it was a case of a matter of going to the archives um, to find any surviving court papers. Some, there were more or less none. Some were very scant. Um, but the main case study I use is one for which we're really fortunate. We do have a full set of um, case papers. Um, and for the 18th century, the number of prosecutions that we know of are small. So I did fit them all in. But there were lots of interesting relationships that didn't end in prosecution and I couldn't fit all of those in. So, yeah, there, there were some great stories and cases that, that didn't quite make it into the book. Robert says, well done on the book, Caroline. In the course of researching the book, did you turn up anything that really shocked or surprised you? I think what shocked me most was the way in which certain themes and motifs really persisted from the 18th century till now. I think I was expecting to find a lot more change. There obviously has been significant change, but I wasn't expecting quite so much continuity alongside it. And in particular, I first started researching this area before the Sexual Offences Act 2003 was passed. That act emphasised gender neutrality and non-discrimination. It was a big break with the previous law. And I really expected some kind of noticeable change in the court's approach following that statute. Um, but I'm not convinced that's happened. Um, certainly, it's happening very slowly. Sebastian says, thank you for the great conversation. That's thanks to Caroline and to Rosemary. I have two questions for Caroline. First is this, given the silence around the issue, do you think there are milestones in the history of lesbians in the UK, similar to the Wolfenden Report and decriminalisation for gay men? What are those milestones? 
Insofar as there are landmarks for lesbianism in the criminal law, they're much subtler than for gay men because the criminal regulation was much subtler. Um, but I'd say the landmarks include 1885, when the courts formally recognised that sex between women could fall under sexual offences law. Um, it wasn't hugely remarked, but it was very significant. And I would also add the Wolfenden report itself. It didn't mark a huge legal shift in the very obvious way that it did for male homosexuality, but it did mark a big shift from lesbians being treated by the law and seen by the law as really very different to gay men to a legal understanding of them as being the female version of gay men, albeit a quieter, lesser version. And the second question is, do you find social and legal changes for lesbians were driven by the same factors as for gay men, or are there different factors? Thank you. Some factors um, driving change for lesbians are the same as for gay men. Um, but I'd say the really big difference is feminism. That's been a huge factor that's had a profound effect on lesbianism, um, both socially and legally. Um, so partly as lesbians have campaigned for and benefited from feminism, um, but also as the courts and politicians have reacted to it um, with both positive and negative reactions. If we go forward three centuries, will there still be issues? I'll be honest, I have absolutely no idea what's going to happen over the next few centuries. Um, some of my thoughts are probably pretty pessimistic, but uh, focus on the optimistic side. I'd like to think that our sex or gender will no longer be treated as the most important thing about us. Um, so to take the classic example, when someone has a baby, people say, oh, what did they have? Or with prenatal scans, even, what are they having? And the tempting answer is a puppy. Um, but obviously what people mean is what sex of child are they having? So that gets to define us from before we're even born. And it shouldn't. And I'm really hopeful that that will change in the centuries to come. Thank you, Caroline, for answering those questions so openly and well. Uh, I mentioned the word open for the Open University Law School. Being open to people, places, methods and ideas is, is crucial to the vision of, of the university. Uh, and the mission is often put as also as social justice. So this book is exactly in line with the mission and, and vision of the university. We're very grateful to Caroline, but we're also grateful to those behind the scenes, particularly Louise and Matt and Keith, and those in the law school who have helped uh, Dawn, to Caroline herself and to Rosemary as our guest expert. And thank you for participating in this special occasion for the research cluster on feminism, gender and law. Thank you. Thank you very much. And could I also say a big thank you to Louise and her colleague Matthew who've done a fantastic job of organising this.
thank you for listening to this episode. The podcast has been on hold due to the pandemic and the way that it impacted our lives and our working patterns. But now we hope to be back and bring you some exciting research from the law school. Since our last episode, we have had many new colleagues join our ranks and I hope to bring you their research on this podcast. I'm Marian Ayaski and I'm the research fellow at the law school. If you want to find out more about us or about Caroline's new book, click the links in the show notes below. Hope to see you again. Thank you.